it's a great day to be in church worshiping uh, our King. And it's a great day for you to be at City Grace specifically um, because today we are kicking off a new series um, that we're calling See the King. And we're going to take about six lessons and just look at Jesus, uh, purely at Jesus, who Jesus was, what Jesus was doing, uh, who he thought he was, and, and all of those kinds of things. And the, the thing is, so many people like Jesus. Even critics of Jesus, even skeptics of Jesus today, they like Jesus. And, and the people of Jesus' day, the common people of Jesus' day in Jesus' area, they seem to really like Jesus as well, quite, quite a bit. And it, it seemed like people who had the least in common with Jesus seemed to like him the most. And then when you read his interactions with people, the people that you would think that he would be most suited for, they kind of didn't get along with Jesus, and they kind of clashed with Jesus. And if you'll tune in for a little bit today, kind of lean into what we're talking about, I think we'll discover why there was so much conflict. Uh, but Jesus was just brilliant. Jesus was, Jesus was so smart. You know, we, when we think of brilliant people, you know, we think of like Einstein, we think of Tesla, those kinds of people. Uh, my kids think it's me. <laughs> I totally got them fooled. But Jesus was brilliant. Jesus belongs in that category. And then beyond the brilliance, beyond the purely brilliant mind, Jesus was someone who could be touched. Jesus was someone who was emotionally intelligent. And, and there were reports from his time, eyewitness reports of, of, of miracles and these miraculous events and healings. And, and, and there were reports that he gave out free food. Who doesn't like a guy that gives out free food? And so Jesus was just brilliant, and, and he was liked. And then Jesus would say these amazing things like, I've come to give you life to the full. I've come to give you life abundantly is the word that we find in a lot of our like, older translations of the Bible. Life abundantly. The kind of life that's going to be full here and be so full that it's going to bubble up and flow over into eternity, into the life that's after this kind of life. Jesus said, I came to give you that quality of life. Another time he said this thing that's so brilliant, so beautiful, and I think it just speaks to us today. He One time he stood up and he shouted to everybody that was listening to him. He said, come to me, everybody who's just tired of carrying a heavy load. And man, doesn't that sound good about now? Come to me, everybody, anybody who's just weary from life, and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. And anybody whose kids are over in the kids' ministry area right now, just you know exactly what he's talking about, don't you? Ah, oh, rest, peace. And Jesus promises all of that and so much more. And so who was Jesus? And why don't more people seem to follow Jesus? What is it that he says that's so hard to accept? What is it that he says that seems to kind of obscure or block the beautiful things that he offers to us and that he invites us to come and take part in. And that's what we want to look at over these next few lessons. And you got to tune into this. If you're thinking about being a follower of Jesus or you're new to following Jesus, you need to know this stuff. You need to know your history. You need to know why you're here and why we are here and why here today and all over the world, two and a half billion people follow Jesus and claim that he was who he said he was. And so that's what we're trying to do. And, and for this next little bit, don't tune out. I got to talk about some history. And I don't know where you landed on history during high school. I fell asleep a lot of times. In history, it seemed to be one of the more challenging classes I had because I couldn't pay attention. But don't tune out. You got to understand this. Because where Jesus showed up was important. And when Jesus showed up 
on the pages of history was so important. And the Middle East, it's kind of a, a hot area for us today. We know about it. It's a hot topic, and it's kind of highly contested. And it was contested during Roman times as well. Today, we know that the Middle East is a very important place here in America because we want their oil. Look at that. Everybody knew. Now, that's just a rumor. It's just a rumor, guys. That's not real. But anyway, they, you know, we know about the Middle East, and we know what's going on. Well, Rome wanted the Middle East also, but not for oil. Rome wanted it for the trade routes. Rome wanted it for agriculture and for food because they couldn't feed themselves on their own land. And part of the way that Rome conquered the world, and Rome had conquered the world when Jesus showed up on the scene, part of the way that they had conquered the world was to tell everybody, if you'll let us conquer you, we'll make it safe for you. And you can travel, and you can trade all over. We'll bring a global economy into that first century world. And so they wanted the land of Israel. That's where Jesus showed up. And before Jesus showed up, about 63 years or so before Jesus showed up, the Roman uh, general Pompey marches into Israel, marches into Jerusalem and takes the city. And then to everyone's horror, he he marches right up to the temple, the Jewish temple. It was the center of all their life, their economic life and their their religious life and their state life. They had no separation of church and state. And Pompey marches right into the temple and then to the high priest's horror, he marches right past them and straight into the holiest room of the temple. This was a room that nobody went into except the high priest and he only got to go in one time a year. And tradition tells us that they used to tie a rope around his ankle in case he died in there when he was meeting with God because nobody could even go in to take him out. So they would just pull the rope if that ever happened. We don't have record of that ever happening. But this was a special place and nobody was supposed to be able to go into the holiest room, the holy of holies, because that's where heaven and earth overlap. That's where God showed up. And Pompey, this Roman general, just marched straight into there. And when he went in, because he wanted to see this Jewish God, this God that these Jewish people were so worked up about, he looked around the room, and he didn't see any statues. And he didn't see any paintings. He didn't see any carvings. And so he walked back out of the room. This is amazing. This is actual history. He walked back out of the room, and he said, these people are atheists. They don't really believe that there's a God because we can't find any images of their God. And so he thought that they were atheists. And he claimed the land of Israel for Rome, and he told him, okay, now you have to worship Roman gods. But the Jews pushed back on this because the Jews only had one God. They sang about their one God. They worshiped their one God. They they celebrated their one God. Their most important scripture in all of their writings was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we don't worship a bunch of gods like you Romans. We don't worship a bunch of gods like the Babylonians who came before you and the Greeks who were here already and the Assyrians who got here first and the Egyptians. No, you guys have invented your gods. You, you Romans are the new kids on the block. And you think you've got all the right stuff. But we can actually trace back our God and the worship of our God, 2,000 years to our ancestor Abraham. And we're not worshiping your gods. We're only going to worship ours. And so Rome realized how kind of, you know, like obstinate they were going to be. This was going to be a, a friction point. This was going to cause a, a, a tussle. And so Rome said, fine, fine. You can worship your God, but you have to pray for us. And so the Jews said, well, we'll pray for anybody. So sure, we'll worship the one true God and we will pray to him for 
you. And there was this uneasy tension. There was this suspicion, and Rome didn't like them, and they didn't like Rome. And you can imagine they did not live happily ever after. And Roman soldiers weren't exactly the nicest people in the world. And they brutalized the Jews because as Pompey left, of course, the way they did it is they left some Roman soldiers there. They put a Roman governor in charge, and then they got one of the Jewish leaders of the day, and they kind of made him the Jewish king over that area. And they kind of controlled everything through that king. And his name was Herod the Great when they first set it up. And then they also controlled things through the temple and the high priest because they kind of ruled things. But it was, it was heavy for the Jews. It was, it was sad for the Jews and they were oppressed and they hated paying those taxes to those idol-worshiping Romans. And man, those Romans were serious about their taxes. And Luke actually tells us when he opens up the story of Jesus about a census that came to count how many Jewish people were there, how many people were there in that land. Because Rome wanted every single penny that was owed to them. They were serious about their taxes. And the Jewish people didn't like this. We worship the true God. We worship the one God. We're not supposed to be slaves to other people who worship other gods. And so there were little uprisings and there were little revolts that came around. And about four or five years before Jesus was born is when Herod the Great actually died. And some of the revolutionaries kind of seized on that moment to say, hey, the whole power structure is, is being up. You know, there, there's a lot of conflict going on. We don't know what's going to happen. There's no real election that's going to come. And so we're going to step into that vacuum left. And we're going to throw off the Roman oppressors and we're going to gain our independence and we're going to kick Rome out of our area. And the, the leaders of these movements would proclaim, I'm the Jewish rescuer. I'm the one that God is going to make the king. And people would go inside with that one, but then Rome would come along and off with his, you know, they, they, not off with his head, they'd actually crucify him. And then when they would get crucified, all of his followers would disband and they would break up and they'd go back home and they'd wait for somebody else to step up and say, no, I, he, he wasn't really the Messiah. I'm the real Messiah. Follow me. And another 400 or so people would come and join them and they'd go to fight against Rome. But Rome would always win because Rome was just really good at winning at war. And they'd take the other leaders and they would crucify them. And actually, if you read in Acts chapter 5, you can read about some of these revolutionaries that came before Jesus. In fact, one of them came right around, the, his name was Judas actually, and he came right around the time of that census that Luke was talking about. And you can read about it in Acts chapter 5. But Rome did what they were best at whenever these revolutions would kind of start up. And they would execute and they would crucify the leaders and this was a common thing. And I think sometimes we miss this when we read the story of Jesus or when we look at the, the, the figures and the symbology that we have for Jesus. We think somehow that maybe Jesus was like the only one crucified during his time, but he wasn't. It was actually a very common thing. Jesus grew up almost literally under the shadow of the cross. There were people that had been crucified and executed by Rome within his lifetime. He knew about them. Possibly even he had witnessed crucifixions. And as a matter of fact, 40 years after Jesus, this, this whole cycle kept going on. In 70 AD, more uprisings and more revolts started. And now a general Titus was over the area. And he came and besieged Jerusalem. Wouldn't let anybody enter out until he starved them. And then they snuck in and they killed people and they burned down the city. And then they tore down the temple. Took stone off of stone in 70 AD till there was nothing left of the city of Jerusalem. And the interesting and the sad thing is Jesus had actually predicted 
that this was going to happen if the Jews didn't stop their revolting ways, their rebellious ways and rising up against Rome. And, and Chelsea and I, actually, we were uh, privileged to be in Rome a few years ago, and um, Titus's triumphal, uh, triumphal arch is actually still there in Rome, and you can see the Arch of Titus, and actually some of the inscriptions, you can see them carrying away some of the artifacts from the Jewish temple during that time. But the Jews are restless because of their history. The Jews did not like Rome, and they thought that they should be you know, better than this. They should not be enslaved by anyone. And they had these writings, and we call these writings our Old Testament. But to the Jews, this was their, their Bible. These were their writings, and there were writings of song and writings of poetry and prayer and, and some prophecies, all to tell Israel that, hey, you are God's chosen people. You're God's special people, and even though things are bad, one day, Israel, one day, Jewish people, God is going to do a new thing, and you're in this mess because of your sins, but when God does the new thing, he's going to forgive all of your sins. And it's going to allow you to be elevated again in the eyes of the world. And we're going to get rid of your oppressors. And we're going to restore your land and restore your fortune. And then somehow that peace and that prosperity was going to go and spread and transform the whole world. And there would be a time of peace and prosperity and flourishing in the whole world. And that kingdom of that rescuing king, that what the Jews called their Messiah, that kingdom would never, ever end. And to people who had been brutalized and crucified and oppressed and taxed, didn't that sound nice? Didn't that sound nice? In fact, one of the more famous writings in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah talked about this 700 years before Jesus. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And look at the, the language here. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment that's been rolled in blood will be destined for burning. Well, how? How is this going to come about? For to us, a child is born. There's coming a Messiah, Israel. One day, one day, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And this child, this son, somehow is going to be called the Wonderful Counselor. He's going to be called the mighty God. How in the world is the son going to be called the everlasting father? We don't know. We don't really get that part, but we can't wait to see him. We can't wait to meet this prince of peace and of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be, everybody say it, no end. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. Maybe their most famous king. Maybe their best king ever. He's going to reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and with righteousness. And man, if you're being oppressed, don't you want some justice? Justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. It was a period of a new covenant. It was a time when their darkness would be exchanged for light. It was a time when their bloodshed would be given up and they would receive healing, a time when all of the injustices done against them would finally meet the swift arm of justice. And for all of their conflict and all of their blood that they had spilled, there would finally be peace. And it was coming through this one. It was coming through this son. And we don't get it all. Somehow the son's going to be called the mighty God. And somehow the son's going to be called the everlasting father. In other writings, he was called the Lord's own arm. In other writings, he was called the Lord's servant. 
But it wasn't really clear to them. How would he bring this peace? When he shows up, what's he going to look like? When he shows up, what's he going to be talking about? And how in the world is he going to train an army under the nose of the Romans? How is he going to pull off this great upset? And so they thought they could help this come about. And so that's why they were joining these revolutions and joining these movements, because surely this was the way the Messiah was going to come. And we see, for because there were so many uprisings, this is how they were reading their scriptures. They were looking for their Messiah, and they were willing to back just, just about whatever guy was dumb enough to step up and say, I think I'm him. And they backed him. And time and again, Rome would put them down. So they're confused. And they're upset. They're a little bit embarrassed. And they're getting even more and more tired. And they're heartbroken because their young men are being killed. They're being robbed of a military future. And Facebook was alive with fake news back then. And it should have been the time. Messiah should have been here, you know. Our writings tell us about time. Daniel, one of our writers from way back, he told us it'd be about 490 years. I think it's about been 490 years. And surely it's time for the kingdom. And all of their hopes and all of their dreams that were being crushed were just coming to a head. It was all coming to pass in that time. And I love how Luke opens up the narrative of Jesus. Luke tells us, in the 15th year, of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip was the tetrarch of Idaria and Trachonitis and Lysanias was the tetrarch of Abilene. And I love that. You you know why I love this? Because I'm a nerd, number one. You know why else I love this? Because Luke is not saying, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Luke is not saying in a place you've never heard of with people you don't know. Luke is saying, okay, you skeptics. Okay, everyone that doesn't believe me, fact check me. Go on and and research what I am telling you. I am telling you that into that time and into that region, into that area with all of these power struggles going on and all of these power players trying to to vie for the power of the people, to that people whose promises and, and all of that history made them hope so much, this is where it all started. These are the people with whom it all started. And he says, during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, In the wilderness. It didn't start in a palace. It didn't start in the temple. It started in the wilderness. Onto the pages of history stepped a wild man, a wild man named John. And and Matthew picks up the cue of Luke. And Matthew says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. John is saying, Okay, Israel, you've been waiting for it. You've been hoping for it. You've been praying for it. It's about time. Get ready for the kingdom of your one creator God. And here is how you get ready. You need to repent. You need to stop doing life your way. You need to stop treating each other out of selfishness and self-driven motives. You need to stop your injustices against each other. You need to stop your sinning against each other. And for that repentance, I'm going to baptize you with water. 
Now, this was new. We read this, and baptism has been around in the church world for 2,000 years. Baptism is nothing new to us. This was new. This is why he was called John the Baptist. It wasn't that he could have been called John the Methodist or John the Presbyterian. He was called John the Baptist because he was baptizing people, and nobody had ever done that before. There were these ceremonial washings of baptism, but it was always a private thing. It was always something that you did for yourself, but nobody would actually baptize you. But John was a wild man. John had long hair and a beard, and he wore camel skin and ate locusts and wild honey, and he stunk, and he came out of the desert, and he probably never clipped his fingernails, and he, who knows what he looked like, but he was just a wild figure, and he would grab you and body slam you into the water and pull you back up. People said, who is this guy? I don't know, but I like him. We've tried all the rest. Now, isn't it time to try the best? I don't know if they ever said that, but just they had all of these things, and John took what was private and made it something very public. And so confessing their sins, they were baptized by John in the Jordan River. Now, listen, again, if we're familiar, us who are familiar with Christianity, this is no big deal. Oh, they went out to John and they confessed their sins. We've had preachers yelling at us to repent for years. We know that we go to church, and when we go to church, we confess our sins, right? And the worse you feel about your sins, the better it is. If you can work up a tear, the better it is, right? We know this. We've, we've, we've had this in our, in our customs and in our services and in the way that we interact with God for thousands of years. But for the Jewish people, this was scandalous. You don't confess your sins out in the middle of nowhere to a nobody. If you want to deal with your sins, you go to the temple. If you want to talk about your sins, you go find somebody in charge at the temple. And then you tell them how many sins you've done. And then he'll tell you how many lambs and how many turtle doves you got to bring back to the temple based on how much sinning you've done. But now John is saying something new. Come out here. Just come confess your sins to me. And they're thinking, man, if I can go to John and maybe whisper, <laughs> right? Just speak in low, hushed tones what I've done. When you go to the temple and you got 14 sheep behind you, everybody knows what you did last summer. But I can go to John and, and confess my sins to this wild man out in the middle of the desert. And all the religious leaders knew this was dangerous. This was something that was scandalous. This was something that was coming against the temple. And if people don't need the temple to cover up their sins, then people don't need the temple anymore. So this was different. This was new. This was dangerous. And see, we read things like this. It's I was trying to think of how to help us understand all of the nuances and all the, these things that are kind of hidden in the text a little bit. Anybody in here follow baseball? If you follow baseball, raise your hand. Like four of y'all, <laughs> five of y'all. I try, I, I, like when the playoffs come, I'll plug in. It's too many games, right, Chris? 182 games, too many games. Listen, if you follow baseball and your team, maybe since there's only five people, this is a horrible example, but I'm stuck with it now. It's in my notes. If you follow baseball and you have a team 
and there's an unknown rookie that comes up from the farm team, and you don't know who he is. You can't even pronounce his name right. You never heard of him. But you got a good manager on your baseball team, and that baseball manager takes that unknown rookie rookie nobody's ever heard of. Nobody's sure what his name is. They're not even sure if his birth certificate's real. You know, and he takes that that rookie and he puts that rookie in the fourth spot in the batting order. What does that say about that rookie? He's good. He can hit. He can crush that ball. Now, if you don't know baseball, it means nothing to you. You could have put the guy in the ninth spot. You could be in the American League and have the pitcher hitting. You wouldn't know that was wrong because you don't understand baseball. But when you know the backstory of something, when you know the context of something and all of the nuance, you understand the message that a move like this might be sending. And what John was telling the people is you don't need your whole system of religion anymore. The Messiah is about to show up. And when he shows up, he is going to do something brand new. And it's never been done before. And even the Jordan River was symbolic for them. It reminded them of their national holiday. For them, it would be like our 4th of July. It was the time when they came out of Egypt and when God chose them as his people and, and, and they, they left Egypt and, and then they went and wandered in the desert until God brought them into their new promised land, the place where God always intended for them to be. They crossed over Jordan to get there. And when John was baptizing in the Jordan, he is reminding them He's reminding them of all of this rich history that they have. And to them, it was symbolic that they were crossing over Jordan again to come into the new kingdom, the new thing that God was doing. Baptism wasn't just this weird thing. It was full of meaning and richness and depth. And I love, it's one of the reasons that I love baptism. I love everything that baptism symbolizes. And there was so much in baptism, layer on layer on layer of meaning. In baptism, it's the seal of this new covenant that the Messiah brings. It was the seal or the sign of, or, or the way that to, to have your sins remitted. It was the way that you identified with Abraham and all the promises that God gave to him. Baptism is the way that we identify with Israel crossing the Red Sea. Baptism is a symbol of burying our old life and rising to live a completely brand new life. Baptism is amazing. It is beautiful. It is not something for a follower of Jesus to avoid. I am telling you, it is life-changing. It is a miracle of faith that will transform you on the inside. If you're, a, if you're new to City Grace, we have something coming up and next month, and we're going to start talking about it in a few weeks, and I'm so excited about this. And If you're newer to City Grace, it's just this beautiful experience for your adult faith. There was, there was something in baptism that takes us and ties us all the way back to the creation story, all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve needed a covering for what they had done. And baptism is this covering. It is a clothing with Christ where our wretchedness and our failures and our past is now hidden and we stand before God completely absolved but also completely owning everything that Christ has done. Mm. 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 So for everyone wanting to be a Jesus follower, you gotta understand this. 
You got to understand what's up with the fourth spot in the batting order. You got to understand the context of what's going on. You are joining a historical and a very real movement in baptism. In baptism, you are joining with the likes of Jesus, with Paul and with Peter, and with James. It's a statement of your faith that I believe and I embrace everything that Jesus has said to me and said about me. It's a statement that I embrace and I embrace and I identify with all of the martyrs that have gone before, all of the people that gave up their life for the kingdom movement. You're saying, I, I say like Paul, this is the way that I call on the name of the Lord and I find my salvation. It is not this small little private thing. Baptism is so much bigger than that. It's so much fuller and so much richer than that. It's a blessing as you symbolize to the world that the kingdom of God that Jesus was bringing into reality has come into reality in my life. It's real and it's here in me. And my sins are forgiven and my future is tied to his but you need to know where it started. And it all came to be a part of following Jesus with John the baptizer. Nobody had ever done this before. And when John did it, he tied it to so much of their history and to so much of the long hopes that Israel had had for a rescuing king. But then John's message takes an unexpected turn. Then John's message kind of veers off from what they were looking for. And John tells them, listen, if you guys are going to do all this, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. What he's telling them is, look, your Jewish nationality doesn't count for anything. It's not doing anything for anybody. You're about as useful as a box of rocks. He's telling them, hey, Jewish people, our temple system, this old religious system, listen, all it did was turn our religion into a system of guilt management. We do bad. We feel guilty about it. We go to the temple. We don't feel guilty anymore. And then we go back to the beginning, and we start all over. We do bad, feel guilty, go to the temple, don't feel guilty anymore. Sounds like a lot of religious systems today, doesn't it? Sounds like what a lot of people think that Christianity and church is all about, doesn't it? It does. Maybe that's why you don't go to church very often. Maybe that's why more people don't go to church very often. After a while, it just, it just seems pointless. And I don't feel as guilty anymore now anyway because I've done it so many times. And I missed that chance, so you know what? Maybe I'll just catch it on the next time. But you might be glad to know that if you think that that way of doing religion and doing church seems like a waste of time, Jesus would agree with you. And that's why he showed up. And that's why John was having people confess their sins away from the temple. It was an announcement that what you're doing is broken, but there is something brand new that is coming. It's a new way of being put right with God. It's a new way of living life that doesn't leave you stuck. But you got to come back for the other lessons, and I'll tell you the rest of it, all right? So John is saying, listen, guys, we know Jewish traditions. 
We look really good on the outside, but it's not doing anybody any good. We're not a blessing to anyone around us. Even though God had told our ancestor Abraham that we're supposed to be the people for the world, we have become a people against the world. And so John is saying, God is going to bring you into this new kingdom, this new thing that he is doing, but he is bringing you in so that you will start giving out good fruit. And so the people ask the question that probably all of us are wondering, well, then what do we do? What kind of fruit qualifies? And John answered, anybody here have two shirts? He's looking around the crowd. Somebody in the back kind of raises their hand. He says, listen, will you give one of your shirts to this guy? Because this guy doesn't have one. And his back hair is troubling. <laughs> anybody have extra food? I know it doesn't look like he doesn't have to eat, but can you share your food with him? This is the new kingdom. This is the new ethic. This is the new way. And isn't it interesting that when the church started, when we get past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we get to Acts where the, the church actually started picking up movement and picking up steam. All of the church came together and Acts tells us that they had everything in common and that they shared so that no one had any need. Almost as if they were saying, hey, if we're this new people, if we're this new kingdom, this new thing that God is doing, where we are bringing justice and we are bringing peace onto the earth, then let's start by just doing what's right in front of us. And no, it may not change the world overnight, but it will be a symbol to the world that the new thing that God has promised is coming to reality in me. That I am being changed. Oh, come on, somebody that's been changed by the love of Jesus. Come on, to show the world around us that it is not that I am stuck in a system of guilt management. I don't go to a church to waste my Sunday, but I go to be transformed. I go to be remade. I want to take part. I want to take part in what Jesus is doing. I want to be part of the movement. And so thousands, thousands of people were around John, and they were looking at what John was talking about, and they say, man, if that's what repentance looks like, we want in. If that's what this new thing looks like, that people treat each other like that, we want in. We want to be a part. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? And so John started dunking people by the thousands. I'm talking like he got Popeye forearms from just, I mean, it was an assembly line. Next, next, right? And, and the people started to wonder, well, you know, John's the one telling us about the kingdom. And, and John's the one, you know, offering all this forgiveness. Maybe John, maybe John's the Messiah. They were waiting expectantly. There was anticipation. There was a buzz in the air. They were wondering, could John be the one. Could John be the one? We know all of the backstory. We know all of the promises. One of the things that Messiah is going to do, he's going to fix the temple system. And John's already doing that. John's already circumventing and taking us into a new way. According to our scriptures, he's going to throw off the oppressors. We don't know how, but maybe John is the guy. He's going to bring justice and peace into the world from God. But they started to ask the wrong questions. They started to miss the point because who was the justice for? Who was the peace for? Was it only peace for Jewish people? Was it only justice for the sins that had been done to the people of Israel? 
What about the justice that was owed to the people who had had sins done by the people of Israel? They were confused, didn't know what was going on. And John shuts down their talk. He says, I'm not the Messiah. Look, I'm baptizing you with water. But there is one who is coming. He's more powerful than I. He will come. And the straps of his sandals I am not even worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I'm bringing you so far, people. I'm offering you a chance to confess your sins and to have your past completely washed away, but you're still going to be stuck if you stop there. If you'll wait for the guy that's on his way, he is going to put a new spirit within you. It's a holy spirit. It's a different way of doing life. It's a different life force that is being breathed into us, and then it breathes out of us like an inhale and an exhale of heaven itself self coming through his people. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. I know I got more notes to preach, but does anybody know what John was talking about? Oh, it's so beautiful when heaven breathes into dead lives and makes us brand new again. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he goes on his winnowing fork is in his hand. Do you guys know what the significance of a winning fork is in the Holy Scriptures? Neither do I. It was a tool that they used. I don't know. His winnowing fork is in his hand. I'm not a first century, you know, farmer. I don't know. But they, were, they had to do that. We, we buy our bread already done, right? It's already sliced even, right? We've even got a saying for that, the greatest thing since sliced bread. Yeah, these guys had to make their own bread. And they said, he's coming. And he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff, the pure grain, from those things around us, around it. And he's going to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There will be a purge. He will burn away everything that is unjust, and you don't want to get caught in the crossfire. And see, doesn't it have to be this way when someone cleans up a mess? When someone comes in to fix what has been done wrong in your life, Doesn't someone have to answer for those wrongs? Isn't that even what we see going on in our world today? Isn't this cry for justice what's behind the Me Too movement? This cry for justice, it's what's behind the Black Lives Matter movement. Justice is a universal cry for all people, for all time. Every war, in every nation, every period of history, for every oppressed people, justice for those who have been sinned against. But what the Jews failed to realize is that he was bringing justice for everyone sinned against, not just for his special people, but also for those that his people had not been so special to. And John says when Messiah comes, when your king comes, he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff and he's going to serve up some sweet justice so that peace can finally come. He is the prince of peace. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news. Look at how they received this news. When they heard about God's justice, it was good news to them. It was the best kind of news. Why? Because the things that had enslaved them were soon going to be gone. 
the things that had robbed him of a future, he was promising to take away. Can I make a spiritual application this morning? What addictions and what habits have you so bound up and you can't seem to get away from them? If you'll let the justice of God into your life, he will set you free. What things in your life have robbed you of a future and seem to speak death into your relationships or into your marriage or into your career? Let Jesus into your life. Let the Messiah come into your life and he will make everything right again. See, they saw God's justice as a good thing because they trusted the character and the nature of their God. And if hearing about the justice of God, if hearing about the judgment of God makes us afraid, maybe, maybe there's a nagging voice in the back of our heads that's telling us we just might be on the wrong side of his justice. But John was telling them, you don't have to be afraid. John was telling sinners, you don't have to be afraid. Do you know why John was telling them or why John could tell them or maybe why they weren't afraid when John told them that justice was coming? Somebody asked me, why weren't they afraid, Jared? Because exhorting. Because exhorting. John is exhorting people and they love it. They can't get enough of exhorting. They're telling friends and family and neighbors, hey, we found a new preacher guy, and you should hear him exhort. He exhorts like nobody else exhorts. And so they came out of the Jordan, came out to the Jordan because they wanted to be exhorted. And most of you in this room have no idea what in the world I'm talking about. We have no idea what exhorting means. I wasn't even really sure what it meant. So I went and looked it up and said, exhort. So I went and looked it up in a different dictionary, the Greek one. And listen to this. It says, to comfort someone by calling them over to your side. It means that John was telling sinners, judgment is coming. It means John was telling sinners, you're on the wrong side of the judgment. And you'd better fear it. And you'd better worry about it because his judgment is a perfect judgment. And it's not going to stop until every wrong has been accounted for. But let me offer you some comfort by inviting you over to the other side. Let me offer you to come through the waters of the Jordan River in baptism. And you can escape the fear of judgment. Let me tell you that he has not left you hopeless. He's not abandoned you on that side, unable to fix your own wrongs, but he is calling. He is calling. And that is the cry of Jesus that we have all heard. He says to anyone, to whosoever will come. Oh, come on, clap your hands to the one that has called you. Come on, give thanks to the one who is inviting you. John's telling him, don't you remember those promises you made that you broke? You remember the vows that you made, and then you broke the vows. Do you remember when you took what wasn't yours? Maybe he was talking about stealing, or maybe he was talking about relationships. Maybe 
He reminded them of the time when they were angry and they had wounded, when they had cut someone so deep with their words and with their contempt. And John was saying, Messiah is coming. And the people who have been sinned against have been praying for this day. The people who have been done wrong, they deserve this justice from God. And think about it. Think about it. A good God has to be a God of justice or else he is not good. How good would God be if he let child abuse go unpunished? How good would God be if he allowed genocide to take place without ever letting it be answered or making it be answered for? What kind of good God would he be if he knew something had been taken and he never made restitution for that thing that had been taken? If he is the kind of God that allows these things to happen with no plan to balance the cosmic scales, he is not a good God at all. And I think that everybody in this room knows what I'm talking about. The things that you have had done to you. The wrongs that you have had committed against you. Anyone that's ever been hated. Anyone in here that has ever been injured or pushed to the margin. Anybody that has ever been robbed or abused or cut to the heart so deep that it just seems like the scar won't heal. You want justice. You want justice. You want to believe that God is good. And John was there to say, and I am here to say this morning that God is good. And one day his justice will arrive. One day his healing will show up on the scene. And he is the only one that can make you right. Your psychologist, your therapist may be able to take you all apart. But only Jesus can put you back together. Your pills may make you numb. And I'm not discounting anything that's been prescribed to you. But I'm telling you it will never make you whole. Only Jesus can make you whole. Only the one that puts you together in your mother's womb can put you back together again. Only one, the one that knows the number of hairs on your head can account for your whole life and hold you in his hands. But also to those who have done injury, to those who have done wrong to others, which is every single one of us, good news for us too, for forgiveness is here. There is a calling to the other side. There is an exhorting that happens. Jesus has already planned how this is going to take place. And you got to keep coming back to the other lesson so I can tell you how it works. And John exhorts the oppressed and the oppressors and those sinned against and the sinners. And he invites them over to God's side, pass through the waters of baptism and come to God's side. Be filled with the Holy Spirit come into this new thing that God is doing. This is how you join the movement of God's rescue and God's restoration. And then John tells us that all this happened at Bethany on the other side of Jordan. See, it's a very real place. It was a very real time to historical people who actually lived and actually existed. And the next day when John was baptizing, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And to those people... John said to the people so weighed down 
by the oppression of the Romans, to the people so weighed down by their crushed hopes and their, their dreams that they had just dared to dream and then seemed to get crushed at every turn. The people so tired of a religion that didn't seem to change anyone for the better. To those people, John said, look. Look. He didn't say, let's all pretend. He didn't say, can you imagine if? He didn't say, close your eyes and pick a card. Like this is some kind of magic trick. But he told the people, and he invited those people that were heartbroken and sick of sin. And John is still inviting us today who may be heartbroken and sick of sin to simply look. Look, look, look at the Lamb of God. To the people who knew the story. To the people who lived in that history. To the people who knew about the Lamb. That it symbolized a covering over their hearts so that judgment would pass over. This was full of meaning. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away sin. See, there's two words in English, takes away, but when you look in the Greek, it all comes from one word. It's this one word that means to kind of unstick something that's attached. It's like you stepped in gum on your shoe. And you can't get it off. I tried, and I've gone everywhere. Now there's another wrapper and a leaf stuck to it, and I can't seem to... It's stuck to you. Those things from your past that you can't shake. The things that you have said and the things that you have done. And it has changed the way that people see you. It's even changed the way that some of the people you love see you. It's stuck. You can't seem to get rid of it. Injustice. But also as the prince of peace. Look. Look. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, who unsticks everything that seems like it's stuck to you forever, and He carries it away. He carries it away. He carries it away. Come on, can you give God thanks this morning? And then John adds something that to these Jewish people, it, it blows their minds, it upsets them, it's another scandal. There, there are people of history, there are people of backstory and meaning and national identity, they're the special people of God, they're the chosen people of God. And John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, of the whole world. The whole world. Wait, John, John, we're the special people. Don't you mean he only takes away the sin of the special people? No, it's the whole world. John, we're, we're the chosen people, John. Are you telling me that he's now going to take away the sins of the non-chosen people too? John said of the whole 
world. John, we've been beaten up for centuries by Rome and the Assyrians and the Greeks and the Babylonians, and we, we still have dead family members, family members that have been executed and crucified in our lifetime, John. You're telling us he's going to take away those sins? John would say the sins of the whole world. He's really going to do for them what he promised to do for you. He is really going to be for them like he has been for you. And again this morning, I would say I don't care who you are. I don't care your background. I don't care your race, your nationality, whether you got the card or don't, whether you hopped the wall or crawled under or you were here. It does not matter. God has come to tell you that this new thing is open to the whole world, to white Americans and black Americans and Mexican Americans. I don't care in this country, in that country, in in our language, in every language, Jesus Christ is the king that will pick up and carry away the sins of the Oh, come on and clap your hands to Jesus. Look at the king. Look at the king. John, this is a scandal. John, this is a scandal. Our whole national identity has been us against the world. We don't eat their food, John. We don't wear their clothes. We can't even go in their houses, and they're for sure not allowed in ours. Even in our temple, there's only a tiny little area where they can go, John. The rest of it is for us. Our whole nationality is against them. But you're saying that when our king comes, he will provide a covering the whole world. And this was the tension. This was the scandal that rocked the nation as Jesus stepped onto the pages of history. This is what upset the Jews who didn't like him. This is what upset the religious leaders who wanted so badly to execute him that God was doing a new thing. And it was coming with new symbols and new methods and new ways of getting into the new thing. And it was opened up to some new people. And the old is gone and the new has come. And Jesus was the bridge between the old and the new covenants. In Jesus Christ, the two different sets of laws were fighting their tension. The two different worldviews were battling it out. And Jesus was born under the one to make it go away so that Jesus could introduce the new. And the new was actually something not so new, but it stretched back all the way to creation. It stretched back all the way to Abraham. And the words that God had told Israel, that you are my special people for the rest of the world. You are my chosen people to bless the rest of the world. And that old covenant was temporary. The old covenant was with a nation. But now God was doing something for the whole world. But they couldn't see it. They didn't want it. And so the religious leaders of an old and broken system 
team together with the powers of this world. They teamed together with Rome who was oppressing them. And they had Jesus executed. God's special people killed their king. The chosen people crucified their Messiah because they didn't want the new that was coming. But Jesus came to establish three new things. He came to establish a new covenant, and that covenant is open to you and to me today. There's a new way of getting into this new movement that God is doing. Repentance is involved. And you got to come through the waters of baptism. You got to take part in this. I'm telling you, there's nothing like it. You got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You got to have the breath of God breathing into you and breathing out of you, breathing into you, breathing out of you, breathing in, breathing out. Because God is doing something new. Jesus gave a new command. This new command became the one ethic for this new movement that he started. This one new command. He took 613 laws that they had received in the old covenant and he boiled them all down to one. And that one new command became the ethic that governs Christian morality. It became the one ethic that governs Christian generosity. It's the way and the reason that we forgive. It's the way and the reason that we share that we bless, and that we do everything that we do as Jesus followers. It is the way, the third thing, the new movement that Jesus started. It's called the church. It's here today. It's what you and I are enjoying today. It's what you, it's the reason that you and I have gathered and we're talking today. Because this is what Jesus came to do. To make things new. To make things new. As I was uh, as I was thinking about how to land this thing, I uh, was thinking about things in life that are just scary experiences in life that are new scary. And I, I went back to uh, Caleb's birth, actually, the day when Caleb was born, and Dad was macho Mexican. You got to be in there with that that girl. I remember you telling me, Dad, but she was a lot scarier than you. So I was in that delivery room with Chelsea, and man, it was noisy, it was scary. I don't know if it was stinky, I was breathing through my mouth. I just, I get into those situations, I was already preparing for changing diapers, like, I mean, just, you know, sound like Darth Vader probably, right? Man, and the doctor was late, you know, the doctor was late getting there, nurses are running around, that baby's coming whether the doctor's there or not. And then Caleb was turned in the birth canal, and they weren't going to be able to, you know, bring him out. They, the doctor finally got there, and he had to reach in and turn Caleb. His nose got all smashed, and Caleb sounds like Darth Vader when he breathes now. It's just, I think it happened then because they had to turn him. And then he came out, and the cord was wrapped around his neck four times. That doctor tricked me in a good way. He says, no problem, Dad. Look, it's one, it's two, he's unwrapping the cord. It's three, it's four. See, four times. Yeah, you didn't know that. You just tricked me, you know. He was calming me down, and it worked. And then Kayla was out into the room, and he was crying. He was purple. He was gooey. 
His face was smashed. And I said, put him back in. He's not done yet. Dear God, what have I unleashed upon the world? And then the doctor handed me these scissors because the umbilical cord was there. And he handed me the scissors and he said, cut the cord. It's like, no way, I'm not cutting the cord. He said, cut the cord, hurry up. So I reached up and I, I cut the cord. And it wasn't like paper. And I was trying to think of how to describe it. And this is the only thing I can come up with. It was like cutting leather celery. That's not even a thing. But it was soft at the beginning and it had a little crunch at the end. It was weird. It's like cutting leather celery. It's just sitting. And then it was clamped and it was done. Took him over under the lamp. And I started praying, God, make him into a human. God, make him into a human. But you know, there, there have been so many other moments that have defined fatherhood. The time, you know, teaching him to ride a bike. I'm getting all emotional now. I'm a big baby. Oh, Lord. Teaching him to ride a bike, throwing a ball, right? Teaching him about life. Anybody have the talk with their kids yet? If you got any pointers, come see me after church, please. I'm still not sure what happened, you know, so I just. <laughs> Chelsea knows. So many other things that have defined fatherhood. So many things that have defined fatherhood. But that moment, leather celery, <laughs> I'll never forget it. It was special and it was a little bit scary. I'd never done it before. I wasn't sure. I didn't want to drop him. And was it going to hurt him? Was it going to hurt her? What did it sound? Would it make him cry? What was going to happen? Would stuff come out, not come out? I don't know. It was so, so scary. And there was something about that moment. I'll never forget it. It was special. It was deep. It was powerful. I can still remember. I mean, here we are 16 years later. I remember the feeling and the sound. And to you, I would say this. There are going to be so many moments that define you're following Jesus. There are going to be so many moments that define you being a Christian. There are going to be so many things that you do for God, places you go. And like that Dr. Seuss book, oh, the places you'll go. So many things that God wants to do through you and for you. But the time when you first come to him and you confess your sins, it's nothing like it. The time. time when you go under the waters of baptism and it's not because the water's special we get it out of a hose we use a horse trough because the city wanted 15 grand to put in a real one it's not that but your faith when you go under that water and because of what you believe you come up out of that water crossed over to the other side
that we who are sinners, that we who knew the justice of God was coming, have found comfort in the fact that the King of kings and Lord of lords has invited us over to the other side. And we don't have to fear anymore. We don't have to be afraid. Because Jesus came and he's making everything new. He's making everything new. And he wants to make you new. He wants to make your life brand new. He wants to change you completely from the inside to the outside. He doesn't just want to take away your guilt. Oh, he's so much better than that. He wants to transform you. Mm, Jesus. Can we all stand in this place this morning? In this moment, I asked them to change the song they were going to sing. They're about to fire me as pastor. I did it to them last week too, but I just feel in this moment God's about to do something special for somebody. And in just a moment, I'm going to invite you up to the front. And what I want you to do is that you have been invited over to the other side by him, but he waits on that 